What's going on, guys? Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comero, joined by Joe Gaudio. So this is the first episode in a while. I meant to kind of have a consistent uh, ability to put them out for the offseason and kind of conclude the offseason podcast, but unfortunately, schedules have been a little hectic. Um, so first, I want to say... Thank you for the really, really kind emails from a bunch of you about the deep dive that I did last time. It did take a lot of work, and I really appreciate that. And I probably gave almost too long a response to some of, to, uh, some of those emails. I was just really excited because it's nice to know that it is appreciated, and I'd love to have a community really to who's interested in kind of in-depth stuff like that. So uh, I appreciate it. Um, I will have something out, which I'm going to do solo, uh, around the same time as the uh, season preview, which kind of just gives a little info. If you haven't listened to this podcast, since I know it is getting more popular, just how I do things, because it is different from a lot of the other podcasts. I'm not saying better or worse, just a little more depth to it. So I'm going to I'm gonna do something there, but to kind of shorten that up a lot, I, the way I responded to a lot of people saying they really enjoyed the pod is to say, I I had it out. This is my sixth year doing it. I'm about to start the sixth year, and at first, and basically, I didn't have it on iTunes for a while because I'm an idiot, and I just thought, hey, people will see it on Twitter or whatever um, from SoundCloud, and hey, if it's quality, they're going to support and they're going to promote. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. So two years ago, I put it on. I finally got it on iTunes, but I, I changed the name a couple times so it wasn't consistent. So last year was the first year. It was under a consistent name of Duke Basketball Corner. And especially towards the end of the season, it really shot up in popularity and through this off season. So it, it's kind of – it's a sort of validation not for me, but for the fact that there are Duke fans interested in this in these kinds of topics. So that sums up – all that. Um, I did want to just add a couple things, which I should have mentioned um, for the recruiting pod. One thing is Duke academics. Qualifications for admittance and standards as a student, it was likely more of a factor before the one and done era. And there's, there's, but still, it's a factor. And there's a reason elite academic schools have historically, though not always, had a tougher time getting elite recruits. That's why schools like uh, Stanford. Uh, schools like Vanderbilt, they can still compete, but it's it's just tougher to get uh, the most elite athletes. Um, I also should have talked more about how a lack of individual freelance, really outside of Jay Williams in Duke's system, especially when applied to underclassmen, probably played at least a legitimate role in missing out on certain types of recruits before the one-and-done era. Obviously, that reputation has since vanished, but for a long time, I mean, you could say Kay's military background may have instilled a mindset in which players needed to earn trust over time in order to freelance outside of the system. And even then, it was rarely allowed. So that it may also have played a part in many Duke players not being as successful in the NBA as when they were in college. Because in the NBA, if you can't freelance to get a bucket, you're destined to be really a role player at best. Two more things. When naming McDonald's All-Americans on championship rotations, I somehow skipped over 2001. And all seven in that rotation were Burger Boys. When mentioning guys who worked out well in the NBA, I did include Jay Will with Boozer and Dunleavy. And as frustrating as everyone knows, Jay Will did suffer that um, injury on the motorcycle 
which ended his playing career. So that sums everything up. But, uh, yeah, with a lot of information, there was bound to be some stuff that I missed or kind of misspoke in a little bit. But uh, I appreciate everyone's understanding. And last thing before we get started, I will say that I've had a great time recording these ep- these off-season episodes with Joe, and I'm still going to record with him. And there's a big reason I'm saying this with Joe here, so I do not – misconstrue anything but I just want to say that uh, this season will kind of act as a um, I guess an audition of types for whoever wants to be a co-host because while I have a ton of fun recording with Joe I am eventually looking to get this thing really widespread and and make some money off it even Um, and plus just having people enjoy it on a consistent basis so somebody who can really fit it into their schedule consistently somebody who can offer a lot of input somebody who can edit um, for me once in a while so it's not always on me somebody who can act as a play-by-play kind of introducing everything and let me be the color occasionally color commentator just a lot of stuff which could help me out input feedback all that type of stuff and Joe does a great job of it but he is uh, busy with family and everything and it's just there's no guarantees in life and obviously family comes first and I would expect nothing less but if anyone is interested in the possibility email me at dukebasketballcorner at gmail I'll mention it not to this extent but occasionally in pods I will bring it up but uh, Joe hopefully I didn't say anything that made you look bad because like I had mentioned I do enjoy recording with you and I and even now I've been talking for a while so this sounds pretty long-winded but uh, hopefully um, we had spoke a couple days ago you uh, you hear where I'm coming from and you agree yeah I mean I agree and you make me sound a little more popular than I think I might be yeah, honestly it's tough when you gotta you know being a being a teacher and doing all that fun stuff and working that type of work. And then you come home, you got a family, you got a wife, you got a kid, you know, wife likes to travel. So it just makes things a little more difficult. I mean, I love and enjoy what we're doing and I'm excited to get into the season and do all that stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think it's a bad idea to to always try to improve and, and get the thing to where we eventually want to get it to. So. All right, um, so everyone can hit me up, Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail. All right, let's get into this, and this will be the first of uh, kind of we're, we're doing a marathon, not in a row, but uh, today and then tomorrow. Today we're going to do the last off-season episode, and tomorrow we're going to do a uh, preview of the ACC teams, and I guess a little bit of what we're looking for or hoping for with uh, Countdown to Craziness. I mean. There's, it's pretty limited what you can see there for the uh, scrimmage. I don't think there's going to be too much defense, but we'll just kind of intro a little bit how we feel this Duke team might be. But uh, mostly it'll be ACC, but we got a lot of podcasting to go today and tomorrow. So for today, as I said, it'll be the last offseason pod. What we're going to do, there's four topics. We're going to go over rotations. Um, in the K history, especially, I decided to just start it off really from, I think I have it started from 98. There's stuff before then, but I think 98, at least it, li- it makes it a little easier, a little more recent. Then we're going to go into, everyone knows how good Duke shooting guards and small forwards are. So we're going to get into the history of point guards and front court players for Duke. Then it's an interesting topic. I know Joe... He loves that 2012 team, can't get enough of the 2012 team. So we're going to get into a little uh, 
deep dive, not a deep dive, but just get into that 2012 discussion a little more because I find it interesting. And lastly, some stats generally indicative of Duke team success, quote-unquote failure, or some that have just stuck out to me over the years. So, starting with rotations. Before we even get into it, Joe, is there anything, I would say, since 1998 that have stuck out to you um, in any possible way about Duke's rotations? Do you feel K doesn't use the bench enough? Do you feel he uses the bench too much? Do you feel he relies too much on experience, not enough experience? Is there just anything you've thought over the years that you, you uh, are impressed about or wish could improve about K's rotations? I just wish you would go a little, maybe a player too deeper. I think over the years that we've lost some talent because he just won't go one player deeper. Uh, the Benajays, the players like that, I feel I have a bad feeling. I think we may lose Baker, one of those guys this year because of lack of playing time. And this year's different because this year we're not completely top heavy in our rotation. This year we seem to have a bunch of, of guys that could fit and play and, and, and earn minutes with O'Connell and Baker and Jack White and all these guys on top of obviously the starters that we've discussed in the past. But I don't know. I, I feel like if it just goes a player, a player deeper, a player too deeper, maybe we'll be a little more, you know, refreshed come tournament time too. I feel like we burn, we burn it at both ends and, and we kind of run out of gas because we play such a, you know, a rigorous schedule in the ACC. So I don't know. I just would like to see maybe, maybe going a player deeper just to give us, you know, a little more, a little more depth and a little more come tournament time when you call upon a player to make a play or, or you need somebody due to foul trouble or, or, or with Cam getting hurt last year, you know, you never know what's going to come up. So it's just, I just wish I, he would play a couple more guys. That's all. I mean, these guys are all talented coming in. So I just, they, they seem to stick their seven, eight max and, and roll with it. So, Yeah, one thing that I found interesting was just, I mean, you, you got to know when stats should be applied and when it's just based on, you can, it's a bit easier on memory. So I tried to do a combination on both. And what I found was that it's looking at minutes per game for an entire season is almost close to worthless because, I mean, you, you think about all those blowouts and you just got guys playing so much that are just not going to get time in legit games. Because when people think, what is K's rotation? I assume, possibly incorrectly, that you or whoever is talking about when it's a close game at the end of the season, what is the rotation then? When everything's on the line, what is the rotation? Because I guess it's nice to know that, like, let's say uh, versus Louisville last year. Goldwire was fantastic. He's not going to be in there um, at the end of the season, or he wasn't in there at the end of the season against a Michigan State when you're thinking, oh, he's part of the rotation. Jack White, he's part of the rotation, but then you don't see him. It's like, so they can contribute, and it's great that they contribute, but I don't know if I would generally consider them absolute parts of the rotation. Like in 10 years, when you look back, it's tough. You can, the memories are great. What Goldwire did against Louisville, against Pittsburgh, I mean, even even a bunch of other games. But at the same time, when Duke's season was on the line against Michigan State, 
it, it, there was a very limited rotation. That's how it's gone. That's what I. Th- that's what the interesting thing about K's rotation is. Even going to like conference play minutes per game, it's still tough to tell. So what I did is I went through season by season and looked at Duke's last close game, and that and I used that to say. And even then, there's context. You have to say, oh, did, was somebody in foul trouble, which meant another play, person played more. Otherwise, they wouldn't. I mean, there's a whole lot to this. So, but I thought that was the best way, along with general minutes per game, to kind of get a basis. But do you think that's the best way to go about this? It, it, it's a good way to go about it, and you know, and you, you mentioned that those memories. You know, when we look back ten years from now, we'll remember Goldwire and the Louisville game, or we'll remember what Jack White brought to the Texas Tech game at the Garden this year. Like those type of plays, but at the end of the year, you can definitely tell who Coach K's guys are because those are the guys that, you know, that are going to be on the court regardless of the situation. And they play a lot of close games because a lot of these teams are circling this date on the calendar to play Duke every single year. That's the game they want to play. They pack the stands, they play out of their mind. We've talked. In, in detail about my frustrations every time we go to Blacksburg, but we just, you could tell that there's certain guys that pitch in throughout the season, but when push comes to chub and all the chip push comes to chub, uh, shove and all the chips are on the table, we end up going with the same seven guys. So, and you know, that seven pretty much all the way through the season, when you play Carolina, when you play Virginia, you see the same guys that are on the court and you know, Come big games and down the stretch, come tournament time, you know who's going to be on the court. So picking what, picking the close games, he's not going to go outside the box in the close game, generally speaking. So using that rule of thumb is probably a good rule of thumb to use, actually. Okay, so here's the conclusion I came up with. And then you tell me whether we should start from recent and go a little farther back or start farther back and go recent. So... There are six players in K's rotation. And then after that, generally, besides outliers, it is about five to 15 minutes more. How that gets divided is it depends on the situation. There are some times he has used up all, like let's say it's 15 minutes, he used all of them up on one player and it becomes a seven-man rotation. Sometimes he splits it up between a couple guys. Um, but it's really, it's six guys and then somewhere from anywhere from five to 15 minutes, maybe a little more, and that's it. So when there's more than that, it is, it's pretty interesting to see, but generally it is not. So you wanna start with last year and go further back or start with 98 and then go uh, forward? Either or, either or, whatever one you're, whatever one you're more comfortable with. Okay, um, I'll, I'll tell you what. Then let's start out with uh, with one of the, I guess you could say, outlier um, teams. 98 against Kentucky, legit seven-man rotation. So uh, uh, we're not going to see that often. But after that six-man, remember I said six-man, then bet- usually between five and 15 minutes, 29. And most of them were taken up by the seventh man. So let's look into uh, 1998. Um you had uh, starters, you had one redshirt senior, a senior, one redshirt junior, a sophomore, and a freshman, your sixth man, Battier, and your seventh man, Avery. 
Um, and the starters, Langdon, Wojo, Brand, Carowell, and uh, let's see, wait. Langdon, Wojo, oh, McLeod, McLeod, I forgot. Um, so, yeah, so you had on um, the last game versus Kentucky, the minutes went down 37, 32, 30, 27, 24, 21, and 20. Legit seven-man rotation. So that was nice. And the funny thing is, oh, you'd think, oh, they'll be rested. That's when they gave up that huge lead versus Kentucky and uh, didn't work out too well. So, unfortunately, but it does show right there that, K, it wasn't just six guys and then splitting up. It was legit seven guys with Battier as the sixth man, Avery as the seventh man, or switch up those however you want. But, uh, yeah, seven, seven guys there in the rotation. 1999, 13 minutes past the sixth man, and the sixth man was uh, sixth man was Corey Maggette. Not much. And Corey Maggette, I think he only played, uh, I think he played 11 minutes um, against um, against UConn in uh, the final that I hate to talk about. So, yeah, I mean that's one of those times where. You would hope Kay would use the bench a little more, but even though, I mean throughout the whole season, I mean that's who we had. There was uh, on that team there was Langdon, Avery, Brand, Battier, Maggette, and Carewell. I mean Burgess and James a little bit, but I mean there's a reason Burgess transferred after that, and James he was kind of he he was still young. He was a redshirt sophomore, so uh, yeah, actually yeah, Maggette played to play at 11 minutes in that in that game, so. I don't know. I don't. I mean, should Duke have used more of that? Okay, the case is out for that one, but tough loss there. 2000, really no depth. Ten minutes. So I'm gonna. Here's here's a fun little quiz, which I don't expect you to get at all, and with no, I wouldn't blame you. All right. So the so the starters and the sixth man. You have uh, Battier, J. Will. Boozer, Carwell, and Nate James, and the sixth man is Mike Dunleavy. Against Florida in the NCAA tournament loss, there was one other player who got minutes, played 10 minutes. Can you name him? I will say no, just because I don't think I could have if you asked me this. But shock me. Uh, 2000. So 2001's the year they won it. I can tell you he was a big man. You want me to give you his first name? <laughs> I mean, this is how weird it is. Yeah. Matt. Matt yep. is his first name? Yep. Yeah, I got nothing. Matt Christensen. Really? So that goes to show you Duke's depth that year. I mean, that's why they, they really wore down versus Florida. Matt Christensen was the only other guy to get minutes. They were six and a half deep that year, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So, so Yeah. Not, not not a very uh, big rotation then. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on, on each team. It's just interesting. 2001, uh, you got 10 minutes. And honestly, it was pretty much, I mean, you could say six deep plus 10 minutes. Casey Sanders was kind of, he did a great job, props to him, for kind of holding Carlos Boozer's place while Boozer um, spot, was yeah. recovering. Uh, so Casey Sanders did start the championship game, played 10 minutes, then, then was out. And 10 quality minutes, but, I mean, that team was six deep, and that's pretty much how they stayed. So uh, six guys, then plus 10 minutes. 2002, six minutes. 
So six guys, and then six minutes after Indiana, those six minutes went to Casey Sanders. So, yeah, not, not a deep rotation there. So you wonder, did, were, was Duke getting tired versus Indiana? Who knows? I'm not saying they were. I'm not saying they weren't. 2003, past six deep, 10 minutes. 2004, 2004, they were seven deep. You got to give it to them there. So let's go up to uh, the 2004 roster. Uh, the sixth man was uh, Dockery. The seventh man was Shav with Randolph. So they did get so past six, 22 minutes because they had a legit seven-man rotation and nobody else. And the only other person who played was Nick Horvath. He got eight minutes because Emeka Okafor managed to foul out all three Duke big men. Um, it, like Nick Horvath somehow picked up. He fouled out in eight minutes. That is. <laughs> That is something. And whoever doesn't remember, I wouldn't blame you if you kind of want to forget. Omega Okafor, I think he picked up like four fouls in the first half, and he didn't even play. So everyone was like, oh, come on, Duke, run away with it now. Don't wait. To I mean, he was the, one of the best players in the country, if not the best that year. So it was like, we got to get this big lead. Then he came back and literally fouled out all three Duke base. He fouled out Sheldon Williams, he fouled out Shavik Randolph, and he fouled out Nick Horvath in one half. So, Yeah. That was something. All right, <laughs> moving on. Um, 2005, again, seven deep and then six plus. So 2005, you got Malchione and uh, Demarcus Nelson. They uh, they went seven deep there. So that, again, legit seven-man rotation. All right, so after that, you got 2006, J.J. Reddick's final year. And not, not much there. You got... Uh, I guess you could still call it a seven-man rotation. No one else played besides the seventh man because you got six man Demarcus Nelson, seventh man Lee Malchione. Besides that, it was J.J., Sheldon, Greg Paulus, Sean Dockery, and Josh McRoberts getting all the minutes there. So, again, really, like it was a strict seven-man rotation. Sometimes six-man with uh, just Demarcus Nelson, but Lee Malchione, he did, he did uh, contribute a lot. 2007, um, you got 17 minutes past... Uh, the sixth man in rotation with uh, Marty Potius and David McClure. They would chip in some minutes here and there. But mostly, again, it was six with uh, McRobertshire, Paulus, Nelson, and uh, Henderson. You got Lance Thomas as the sixth man. So, But uh, Mar Marty Potius and David McClure did chip in when available. 2008. This is when um, it's, it, there was a legit seven man. So for these couple years, Kay did go seven man with Shire as a sixth man and Nolan Smith as a seventh. We got 25 minutes past the sixth man on the 2008 team. Um, unfortunately, didn't help. The two, 2018, I still, they, West Virginia, who they, they had this point guard who I think that he got a triple double against Duke and Joe Missoula. Joel Missoula, I think uh, that's his name, or just Joe. And Alexander, um, too. Yeah, Joe Alexander. He's. He was, a lot of people thought he would be good in the NBA. Yeah, he, he uh, had a lot, of, a lot of athleticism. He made us look terrible. Yeah, but Missoula, man, that that look. Ugh. All right, so 2009, right there, you had uh, their final close game versus Texas. You got 19 minutes past the sixth man, um, and the sixth man was Nolan Smith. So not not much. I mean, they really didn't get to 19 much, and it was mostly six. So is that the year we lost hope. to uh, Villanova? Yep, that Scotty was one Reynolds. of the yeah, yeah. That was one of the years that Duke just got 
the snot kicked out of him in the second half. I mean, there's been some NCAA tournament games they've lost where the other te- like when the other team scores more than sixty in the second half, like South Carolina, good. like South Carolina. Oh, South Carolina is by far the worst. Um, but uh, the, yeah, I mean, you, then you got Villanova, and I think uh, Seton Hall did it in I believe that was like nineteen. 19- 80, 88 or 89, something like that, where they scored like 62. I don't I mean, especially in like in those years, Duke was known for their defense. So that right. was just wild. Um, yeah, I mean, they, everyone, I think a lot of people still have negative feelings, as they should, about the Arizona game. Even Arizona didn't score that much. That South Carolina game, I don't even think South Carolina scored in the first minute and a half of the second half. Then they just went nuts. Absolutely nuts. So, good times. All right. Um, what was I on? That was 2009. So 2010. You think 2010 had a deep rotation? Seven, I think. Or four. 2010 was pretty much. It was pretty much five. Really? I mean, well, Mason played a little, didn't he? He was actually a little farther down. I mean, yeah. During the like, if you go over minutes per game, you can say. But all right. So against um, against Butler. But let's see the minutes breakdown. We got 40, 40, 37, 35, 31. All five starters played over 30 minutes. Uh-huh. Then um, you got nine minutes, five minutes, and three minutes. So past the six men, you got eight total minutes. And I think uh, Miles, Plum- uh, Miles Plumley w- uh, was the one who played nine. Then, yeah, I mean, sometimes Dawkins, sometimes Mason. Mason wasn't quite ready. He did show flashes, but right there, I mean, that – the starters pretty much I think that was the most any starters played until like 2018 2018 good old Zubek yeah I mean Zubek when he came in uh, against Maryland that uh, that set a tone because against Georgetown I remember Duke got Duke got their ass kicked and it was like snowy and everyone and I was feeling like crap and then hey all of a sudden everything came together alright 2011 here's an interesting one this is the one season Duke had an eight-man rotation, but it's not. But did they? Because, all right, against North Carolina in the ACC tournament final, seven-man rotation, set seven-man rotation. You got the minutes 39, 39, 33, 28, 27, 19, and 13. I mean, there's two other players who played one minute each. I don't count them. So seven-man rotation, that's pretty much how it was going. Then Kyrie comes back for the NCAA tournament. So and I think, in a way, there's arguments on both sides. That maybe you could say it kind of equaled out the same thing because Seth Curry actually got hurt nine minutes into Arizona, which I thought was the big turning point. But or I, I don't know. I guess that was still before the first half. But either way, um, I mean, that was an eight-man rotation then. That's the only time since 1998 K's gone with an eight-man rotation. So it's interesting. Uh, Myron Metcalf, he actually put out a tweet today. What are the biggest what ifs in college basketball in the last decade? And I said, what what if Kyrie, his toe wasn't healed, and he wasn't able to come back for the 2011 tournament? How do you feel, do you think that would have uh, How do you think that would have gone? From what I remember, I remember him coming back and he played well when he came back, but you could tell the the offense was completely it was just different. It's it was out of sorts. Dude, that ACC tournament final against UNC, Duke, they put it all together. They were gelling. Yeah. The chemistry was there. 
and Kyrie. Love him to death, man. Ama- amazing player. The chemistry wasn't the same. Nolan Smith, You're right. his role, he just wasn't quite sure. if Because he was the alpha with Kyrie out. And then, I mean, I don't know if it was mental or, or what, but it just it just wasn't the same. So but when he was is, on the court and they were playing at the beginning of the year, I mean, they were torching teams. They, I mean, yeah. they played Michigan State, I believe, that year. They played Michigan State at home in the Big Ten ACC tournament, uh, challenge, and they blew them out pretty. I believe Draymond was there during that year. Was, yeah, they only won by, I think, five. But, um, yeah, I, thought that, so I, st- I feel like there were – or he had a massive game in that game. I think he may have had, like, a 30-point game or something that game. Like, he was yeah, out I mean, of control. Ky- Ky- yeah, there's two games. There's Michigan State and Marquette where uh, Kyrie just went – he went. He went nuts. But, but and, missing uh, the whole year, going through all ACC play, going through the ACC tournament, going through you know all that stuff, and then bringing him back in the middle of the tournament or the beginning of the tournament. I mean, it's I don't know. Definitely, definitely hurts chemistry. Yeah, the interesting thing is again in that Michigan State game, I believe. Uh, I think Seth Curry played. He only played around like five or six minutes, and Miles Plumlee played like five or six minutes. So it was a seven-man rotation then. So it's just interesting how it changes. It's essentially like bringing back a quarterback. You know, your your quarterback gets injured. You got another guy that comes in. And you're winning. I mean, do you go back to that guy when he's healthy, or do you? How dare you disrespect Teddy Bridgewater like that? Drew Brees can never replace Big Teddy. Anyway, all right. So uh, 2012. Teddy B. Uh, to 2012, we got uh, 21 minutes past the sixth man in the Lehigh game. So this is a little more. It, it was still, I would say, we'll go. We'll get it. Okay, we'll get. We'll get into that more. We'll talk about 2012. I feel my blood pressure going up a little now just thinking about it. All right, how many minutes do you think over under 12 minutes past the sixth man for 2013? Under. You're correct. Over, under, on eight minutes past the sixth man. Under. You're correct. How, how many minutes do you think? Four. Six. Ugh. Six minutes. That is, I mean. That's brutal. Against, um, because Louisville is a blowout. So whenever it's a blowout, you always have to kind of consider how much the bench is emptied. So I have the minutes uh, against Michigan State. That was their last uh, close game. 37, 37, 36, 36, 26, 21, and then six minutes. And, uh, yeah, the uh, their sixth man that year was Thornton. Uh, Tyler Thornton. Yeah, Tyler Thornton. So, I and, remember uh, his face. I remember his face to this moment when that when Kevin Ware broke his leg. I remember his face, and I knew at that point on in that game, because I believe Duke was up about eight or nine when that play took place, and you could just tell that. The whole air in that building was gone, and I remember Thornton being being our sixth man that year. All right, 2014, we got pretty much a uh, it was like a six man rotation, seven including about five to ten minutes a game for Dawkins. That team was 15 minutes past the sixth man. 2013, oh, sorry, that was the same year. 2015, right here, I mean everyone remembers Grayson. But their previous close game before Wisconsin, because if you want to if you want to count Wisconsin, yeah, I mean they're 30 minutes past uh, the sixth man there, so you could say, oh, they're getting great bench play. Minutes versus Utah past the sixth man in their in their previous close game was 14 minutes, because really before 
Grayson started getting a lot of playing time, it was around 10 to 20 minutes, kind of split evenly at times between Grayson and Marshall Plumley. Well, everyone would like to think Grayson always got the minutes, and Duke did have a bunch of blowouts that could misconstrue the stats or skew them. Uh, it, was only, it was only 14 minutes past the sixth man against Utah. All right, 2016, that was brutal. Uh, that was, uh, I, I think, I, 2015, what was that, uh, eight is enough? 2016 was literally uh, seven. <laughs> there was nobody past seven, and the seventh man uh, played nine minutes. I mean, the total in the loss to Oregon, 40, 40, 32, 30, 26, 23, and nine. So only nine minutes passed, and a huge reason was Emil Jefferson. He went down, and uh, yeah, they just didn't have the depth after that. I mean, you Chase Jeter. They were hoping for a little more, but oh. unfortunately, never happened. Uh, 2017. You think that was a, a bunch of minutes past the sixth man, or not? 2017. So that was Tatum that year. Um, no, I. I mean. I don't think I think we may have went. Yeah, I, w- I would say no. I don't think we went too too much further past the sixth. You are correct. They barely went. It was basically however minutes Giles would get. That was it. Because, yeah, and if uh, he was healthy enough to play him, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> against South Carolina, even with that, it's 36, 34, 33, 32, 28, 28, and nine. Giles played nine. The sixth man was uh, Frankie Buckets, Frank Jackson, right there. So. Not much after. That's your guy. All right. You love Frank. <laughs> love me some Frank, the Mormon <laughs> monster. Uh, 2018. So I said nine minutes for 2017 past six man. How, how do you? I'll say against Syracuse. Do you think it was over or under those nine minutes in 2017? Over. Incorrect, because it's an impossible question. It was equal. Nine oh, minutes. Nice. And Good questions. It was uh, 40, 40, 39, 33, 31. After that, you got eight, five, and four. So it's pretty much, I mean, you got Bolden, you got Javin, and uh, probably O'Connell played a little bit. But, I mean, it was pretty much totally reliant on those five starters against Kansas in overtime. I mean, you with even with Wendell Carter in foul trouble and eventually fouling out on a interesting call, you got 45, 44, 44, 43, and then you got 22 um, with Wendell. And you got uh, Bolden, Javin, 13, 12, and then two minutes for O'Connell. So, I mean, 14 minutes past the sixth minute in a 45-minute game just shows how much pressure there was on the starters and how, I guess, lucky Duke was that Trevon DeVal looked a lot more injured against UNC in the ACC tournament than he turned out to be, so that was fortunate. Okay, how many minutes do you think uh, past the sixth man did they go in 2019 against Michigan State? I'll say the sixth man was Javin. Jav- or Bolden. I don't, I, wait, I'm not quite sure. Did J- Javin or Javin played, started Javin the final played game? a lot. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to think of who was the starter and who was the And they each played about the same towards the end of the year. But I believe Javin way. started. I believe Javin started because that's the game that that Cam came back, correct? So I, th- I o- O'Connell played literally one minute, and then Kay took him out. Like, then he right, came back in, uh, like a little bit later, turned the ball over, and Kay, and Kay pulled him again. Um, yeah, so we got 40, 40, 37, 37, uh, 23, and 17. Besides that, 3 and 3. Goldwire and O'Connell each played three minutes. So with everyone talking about how the rotation it was so deep last year, 
You got six minutes past the sixth man in 2019. All right, we've, we've gone through all those teams. Is there any takeaways you, you have from that? I mean, because, again, with 2011, Kyrie, with Kyrie coming back, that was literally the only time there was an actual, like, legit eight-man rotation. Besides that, it was really rarely past more than, I mean, again, five to 15 minutes past the six-man. So would you rather the starters get a little less time and then um, – the bench get a little bit more time or are you just going to say especially in the one and done era i mean these starters they're nba players a lot of them just roll just roll with the best until they uh, can't even stand up anymore i mean i i think it's a mix it depends we have you know, all all the players we're getting right now are are nba talent players so I can see how you would want to stick with six, but at the end of the day, let me just interrupt you really quick. I'm really happy you agree with me on Buckmeyer about being NBA caliber. All right, go ahead. He's the first. No, he's the absolute first rounder, no doubt. In my in our hearts, he is at least. So he like this. I think this year is. I'm I'm so interested to see this year because I feel like this year is going to be different than those other years, just for the simple fact that there's nine or ten guys that could play on that team. There's four or five that are guaranteed to play the bulk like we do every year. We have we, we pound five, six guys into the ground, you know, and then we have, you know, we we go a couple more deep. So I I would like to, I want to see them go a little deeper, even if they lose a little talent doing so just to keep these guys fresh because they play yeah, such it, a rigorous schedule. Sorry, no, yeah. So they, they, they play such a rigorous schedule. You know, once once the ACC tournament comes and once the NCAA tournament comes and they they seem to just run out of gas. I can't even explain it. Like, it's just it's the same thing over and over and over again. It gets frustrating to watch, but I, I know it's a one day tournament that makes makes it very difficult. But. Yeah, just, and, and it can always be about matchups, how the matchups work in the tournament. I mean, that's I remember, more important. Yeah. Yeah, the whole talk about how Kay wasn't using the bench enough and wearing guys out towards the end of the season. I remember that talk kind of reached a crazy level in uh, two th- in 2006, JJ's last year, because JJ, he did struggle in tournaments. He, there's no r- way around that. But the bottom line is, I mean, Garrett Temple, he had the length to defend JJ, and it was just a tough matchup, and Duke was so reliant on JJ. It, there was just... It, it, it was rough, but that's when everyone was saying, like, they should have developed the bench more. But, I mean, they're destroying teams all year. I mean, Duke was, like, rolling teams in 2006. So it's it's hard to say Kay's doing something wrong in that when you you just have to deal with the matchups. And he certainly was dealing with the matchups well in the regular season. So you never know. Any other comments about uh, rotations? Nope, I'm good. Thanks. Alrighty, then let's move on to uh as i said everyone knows the shooting guards and the small forwards those are the duke specialty under k but i think uh the real interesting um players or or the the more interesting topics um for players is the point guards and the big men because point guards i mean there's the old kind of cliche of duke goes as the point guards go when it's it's easy to say that when 
you have certain point guards who are surrounded by the most talent. You can say, oh, look, see, they won because of the point guard. I mean, Bobby Hurley's surrounded by tons of talent there. And while Tyus Jones was amazing, I mean, it wasn't just him. There have been plenty of great point guards who the team didn't reach its absolute peak during it. But is that their fault? Is that because Duke didn't have a good point guard? I remember even, like, I will say uh, one thing, which... I'll talk about more. I might as well just make the point now with Duke stats to stand out. I think the most overrated stat possible is assist percentage. Because when there's a high assist percentage, everyone's like, oh, look, it's just an unselfish team. You got to understand what type of offense they're playing, what the respo- what the roles and responsibilities are. I mean, with 2015 Duke, they had a high assist percentage at times. But it's interesting how uh, you look at uh, the Utah Sweet 16. 25%, really low. Wisconsin, 29.2%, the second lowest of the season. Five of the six lowest assist rates of Duke's season came in their final nine games. Hmm. So when Duke reached its peak, there was a lot of ISO going on, or at least not a lot. There was a lot of buckets which didn't come from assist. So, I mean, there's arguments to be made on both sides, but I think there's too much out of assist rate or assist percentage. So I I think it's just you got to use the context when talking about Duke point guards. So when you think of a Duke point guard, what are are some attributes and characteristics which come to mind? Defensive, can play D, very a leader on the defensive end, essentially. Um, I think that a, a... a vocal leader, someone that's able to kind of lead by example, lead on the court, be able to shoot because they'll play a little off the ball. And that, that's the thing. They never play with the ball. We've never really, we never really have like an ISO point guard. And we usually have that player be able to play off the ball a little too. Like Quinn comes to mind thinking of that type of player. So I think the main attribute that Duke looks for is a guy that's, Someone who's gritty, hustles, plays hard, generally a good free throw shooter. That type of stuff is what Kay's looking for. You want, just say it. Slaps the floor. We're talking Wojo, right? Hit. We're talking Wojo. We're talking Hurley. We're talking gritty. I mean, if it's gritty, it's either Wojo or a uh, or, or Greg an NFL Paulus. slot receiver, right? Or Greg Paulus. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right. So what I did, I just I jotted down all the point guards, like literally all the point guards. But it's not just as you said, as you said, and that was smart. It's not. I mean, it's more than. I mean, some guys they bring the ball up. But does that does that make them a point guard? No. Many would say yes. You got to understand. Not I'm not saying you specifically, but a lot of times. It, I mean, the same thing as the mistakes with many calling Trey the point guard of Duke last year. Yeah, he brought the ball up a bunch. Yeah, he ran transition, racked up assists in transition. R.J. Barrett was initiating 75% of Duke's half-court offense, and that's putting it mildly. It probably was more than that. So when you talk about who is really running Duke's offense in the half-court, it wasn't Trey, and that's no knock against Trey. But it just is what it is. So there's there's point guards as most generally think of the point guard role, and there's point guards who have, who is actually initiating the offense. So let's start at the first year. We got Johnny Dawkins. wasn't his natural role. It was a uh, shooting guard kind of being put into that point point guard role, and he could be put in any role. 
amazing, did a great job. But the next year, um, a I, I guess you could say a truer point guard um, was put in in terms of Tommy Amaker. The defense you were talking about, when you think of a Duke point guards, that is Tommy Amaker. I mean, it's tough to find a better defensive point guard under Coach K than Tommy Amaker. Um, so Amaker didn't shoot much, pretty much just kind of deferred. Played his role on offense, and uh, yeah, just really locked down on defense. Okay, so after that, Quinn Snyder. Quinn Snyder, he uh, he he wasn't quite to the level of Tommy Amaker, but really good player, great player. And he, he, I mean, he knows the game. He's doing a great job with the Utah Jazz now. And uh, now is when I think uh, Amaker. I guess the three-point shot. When was the three-point shot uh, started? And, so uh, Amaker only looks like he only got one year with three-point shots. He shot 42.7%, pretty good. Quinn Snyder um, is interesting because uh, he went up and down. You talk about shooting, so key for Duke uh, point guards in terms of the catch and shoot. If you can't uh, succeed catch and shoot, it's going to be rough. And he he's probably, the along with Paulus, the most up and down. He went 36%, 45%, and 29% in his senior year. So he kind of had a roller coaster right there. Then we come to Bobby Hurley, what many who many consider the ultimate Duke point guard. And Hurley, he uh, shot 35.7% his first year. After that, went up to 40%, then 42.1% his final two years at Duke. So he was locked and loaded. And with more about the roles of a Duke point guard, more often than not, you're going to be shooting more threes than twos. I mean, that's how it is. Even as we get to some guys later who it might be surprising to hear, a lot, pretty much all of them, you're going to have to be able to shoot to make catch and shoot threes. And uh, Hurley, that's pretty much all he shot. I mean, in the NCAA tournament's final year, I think he made something like it's something like eight of nine in the first round. Uh, can't remember who they played, but then he, he shot like six of eighteen against Cal. I mean. Most of his shots came from deep, and he wasn't really penetrating the defense a lot. A lot of his assists came from team offense. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he showed really how important Duke three-point shooting was to a point guard, and I think a lot of people kind of misremember some highlights. He was, I mean, he could show some highlights on the break, but he, I think he was more of a knockdown shooter than anything. So when you think of Hurley, what, what, what do you think – yeah, well, what are some opinions of you on Hurley? Because, I mean, I, that almost sounds like I was kind of ripping him a little bit. I mean, he was incredible, especially for someone to come in right away. I think uh, he was the first to really, I mean, Leitner didn't appreciate how K just gave him the ball. He didn't have to earn it. But, uh, and he went through some growing pains, but he's, he's remembered for good reason as one of the best. Yeah, I remember my days watching Hurley. Hurley was actually my favorite player on that roster. And, I, his ability to knock down shots. I think what set him apart was, I mean, his, his, just his IQ was off the charts and it's coming from, you know, you're coming from, uh, you know, his father's a coach, you know, so there's a bit of a different, so to speak, like a different, I don't know, path in, in, in which those players grow and learn from, but I, I just thought he was very, very smart. And where he may have lacked a little talent here and there, athleticism, he made up for it with just his headiness and being just a super, 
just a great, great mind on the court. If a if a Duke point guard right now, let's say they they had a stat line which was like, what would you consider if if somebody had one assist in a game, what what would you consider an unacceptable uh, assist to turnover ratio? One assist to how many turnovers? You you don't want one to one. You don't want a guy who has five assists, five turnovers. So. Is, is is that what he was? Bobby Hurley's first game against UNC, he had one assist. Guess how many turnovers? Six. More. He had more than six turnovers. Mm-hmm. Ten? Ten. One to ten. That's. I mean, if it's ten to one, you're a star. But one to yeah, ten. This is the reverse. Yeah, one to ten, you're you're pretty much holding the clipboard next to me if that's going on. I looked wow. up his stats um, against UNC. The first six games, I think there was one where he was like, he shot okay, but he pretty much missed all the shots and pretty much turned the ball over nonstop in his first six games against UNC. And it just, it makes me think how much pressure is on these, these guys, like as freshmen now to immediately do well, like if they don't perform, I mean, if somebody had a one assist to 10 turnover game against UNC now, they would be they would be kindly asked to like transfer to Siberia. I mean, it would be insane, especially with social media. I was going to say, even imagine with the social media, it's even it's magnet it's magnified tenfold. So, yeah, and Hurley was just god awful against UNC those, <laughs> those six games. It's interesting just to kind of see how somebody did team by team. It's like when Jay Williams to look at uh, his games against Maryland against uh, Steve Blake, the Jay Williams stopper, is, is really interesting, but. It just goes to show you, it's just perspective. It's not trying to make a, a, a necessary, specific point. It's just perspective to uh, to maybe avoid a little bit of the overreaction this season. All right, so after Hurley, we got, uh, it was actually Grant Hill. So Grant Hill went from, he shot a total in his first three seasons, over under on 23-point attempts. In his first how many years? Three. I'd say under. Yep. It was uh, 17. 17 total free, uh, three-point attempts, and 14 of them came in his junior season. In his senior season, he shot 100. So Grant Hill was more of the R.J. Barrett type of initiating point guard, whereas you could say maybe Chris Collins at times, he brought the ball up uh, and, and and helped out there. But Grant Hill, he, he was the initiator of that offense, and, uh, I mean, he was asked to do pretty much everything. Similar to Winslow, right? Basically similar to, like, Winslow's role in 15? I will say there was more on Grant Hill's shoulders, a lot more. But in terms of the actual role, I totally agree with you. Right. Um, in terms of, I mean, Winslow, it's not a joke in Miami right now. He, I think he's literally starting at point guard over <laughs> Dragic. I mean, it's not just like preseason stuff. Like this is the plan, and it's just it, it remind it just reminds me back when he was initiating in 2015. I mean, everyone thinks oh, it was Quinn Cook, it was uh, Tyus Jones, but it was really Winslow. And you talk about why the assist rate might have been a little lower in the, it, towards the end of the season. I mean, Winslow was kind of still learning how to do it, but it's just interesting how that worked. All right, so so we got uh, Jeff Capel and Capel. He uh, I would say he's he was more of a scoring type as well. I think he would have 
benefited with more talent around him. Great player. I mean, especially the final two games of his career in the tournament, unbelievable. But uh, I think there was a little too much on his shoulders. But, man, great job. Really smart player. Shot a lot of threes there. Wojo, no surprise. He basically, I mean, he had a 3-to-1 three-point attempts over a two-point attempts ratio. Um, So he pretty much, when he shot, it was a three-pointer. And besides that, it was just keep the ball moving and work with the talent around you. And, uh, I mean, in his senior season, I mean, he, he had Will Avery with him. So it was kind of that duo point guard, the same type of way that Amaker and um, Dawkins worked that way, the same type of way that Tyus and Quinn Cook and uh, some others. And it was it's just I think sometimes it works that way. And there are two others that we'll get to. I mean, well, I guess after this guy, uh, William Avery. Uh, William Avery, I think he was somebody who really tested Kay's patience because he was the first really freelancer and he was really confident, really behind himself and for good reason, talented player. But Kay wanted it more within the offense kind of Kay was still getting used to guys who maybe didn't come to Duke with that military mentality of you earn your spot, no questions asked, do what coach says, and shut up. So I'm not saying William Avery was like yelling or arguing with Kay, but it was just William Avery did what he wanted at times, and I think Kay was still getting used to that. And by the time Jay Williams came, I mean, Jay was a total freelancer, and Jay Williams, he was god-awful his first couple games, and Kay lived with it. He lived with a lot of uh, Jay's interesting uh freshman year games um i mean those those first two games were just it, it, it was an adventure with jay but he showed a lot of the talent there and uh yeah i mean i think it was an important kind of i don't want to say role that william avery played but it was kind of k maybe saw what william avery the potential he had and he he really possibly changed that coaching style with jay williams so when you think of What's the difference to you between a Bobby Hurley point guard and a Jay Williams point guard? What's the difference? How do you, or just how, what, what are, the, how do you feel about their different types of styles? Yeah, I mean, they're two different. I mean, I look at them as two kind of different players. I mean, Bobby Hurley was, was a good shooter, but he was definitely, you know, after his first game, of course, where he was one to 10, which is not, a good assist turnover ratio. I feel he's more of a, your traditional point guard initiator. Jay Will can get a basket. Jay Will can get to the basket whenever he want, wanted. He was more of a physical, athletic, tougher style point guard. So It's interesting. I mean, Jay Will, you think about, oh, he, you think about those highlights um, of him getting to the rim. He, he shot more threes than twos. Yeah, um, especially in his sec- yeah, especially in his second and third season. I mean, I mentioned in a past pod that uh, that 2001 team shot more threes than any other Duke team by a wide margin. I mean, they would just run down and chuck it. But uh, the combo I was talking about before, which can help with point guards, uh, there's a scoring and then there's one who kind of plays that K role. Chris Duhon. When Chris Duhon teamed up with Jay Will, I mean that you just couldn't ask for a better duo. It allowed Jay Will to play off ball, kind of like a Tyus Jones, and being more of a scoring role that way. Chris Duhon is really interesting because he kind of went the opposite way of most point guards, where 
he shot mostly uh, he shot mostly threes his first couple years, but then his threes went down. He uh, shot almost twice as many twos as threes in his senior year at Duke, and I think that a large reason is because at that point in time in 2004, the offense had pretty much turned into let's either dump the ball inside to Sheldon or just set 70,000 screens on a possession for J.J. Reddick. And I so. think that's why he was tired. Like People don't understand. At the end of the year, you know how hard it is to try to get open when you're J.J. Reddick? Like, that you're running miles upon miles to potentially, potentially get a shot off. I mean, and if it doesn't work, then it's rinse and repeat. You set 25 more screens to get them open. So it's... That that offense was was pretty much predicated on those two and those two only. So, well, I will say there was another one that did have a big role, and that is uh, Daniel Ewing. Yep. Daniel Ewing was more the scoring type, but he could initiate the offense. Again, this isn't somebody who would bring the ball up every time, but he actually he did serve as the primary point guard in 2005. And his three point percentage after shooting 46 percent, 40 percent, and 41 percent, it dipped down to 35 percent. In his senior year, I think it was because he wasn't in the rhythm of the offense as much. I mean, as I said, that offense is pretty much dumping into Sheldon or set 70,000 screens for JJ. So for someone like Daniel Ewing, who was more of a scorer, he didn't get to be as consistently involved. And I think that hurt his production a little bit for in terms of getting into a rhythm. Sean Dockery. In the same thing as like kind of that Steve Wojo role. I think he could have done more, but he did accept his role. And uh, he actually, he turned into a pretty good shooter from three. Came to Duke not really being able to shoot at all. He actually shot 12% in his sophomore year. Went up to 42.9% in his junior year and shot 40% his senior year. So he did what he could. He always has that Virginia Tech shot. But, I mean, want to talk about a defensive point guard, one of the best ever at Duke. Uh, Dockery, I don't think he gets near the credit he deserves. All right, after Dockery... Then we go to, this is where it kind of splits into different types. But uh, let's see, after Dockery, I should, oh, I thought I had Greg Paulus here. Did I, did I eliminate that? Uh, here it is. Okay, Greg Paulus, his <coughs> freshman season, he kind of, I mean, he was basically just in that same role, like handing the ball to uh, JJ and or giving it to Josh McRoberts or doing stuff like that. Only shot 31.4%. Really, uh, I mean, he struggled, but it was kind of thought of as a learning experience. Then he still struggled, but he became almost an automatic outside shooter. I mean, when you talk about Duke point guards and how they need to hit the three, he shot 45% in his sophomore season and 42.3% in his junior season. So everyone was saying, like, come on, Kay, you've got to make a switch to a different point guard. But, I mean, Paulus is hitting those shots, even as Duke – their ceiling might have been a little higher if he was on the bench and with the defense and the turnover issues, but he was hitting those outside shots. When the three-point percentage dropped to 33% in his senior year, he was out. I mean, by the tournament, he wasn't in the rotation anymore. So it just goes to show how when you if, you, if you're hitting the three, at least it can keep you in there. But if you can't hit the three and you have those other issues, that's tough. I know, I know you like Pauls. Do you think – he should have been completely taken out of the rotation, or do you think he got a really a fair kind of run at Duke? I think he got a fair run at Duke. When when you start seeing the trajectory, and you see that type of dive in his three point abilities and his 
you, you'd like to see those numbers go up over time, not down. And he was shooting, you mentioned he shot 45 and 42 and then 33. I mean, shooting 33% from the point guard position. Isn't that basically Duvall type of shooting? Or maybe a little better than Duvall type of shooting, but he doesn't bring anywhere near the other stuff to the table. He doesn't bring the athleticism. He doesn't bring the his ability to defend. So it, it's tough. I mean, if he's not hitting shots, he's not doing the one thing he can do. It's hard to find a spot for him on the court. So I think as I did, I really did like Paulus as a player and as a person essentially, because you could tell he was just a good guy. He's actually, he's actually from about an hour and 15 minutes from where I live. So he's, Oh, is that one of the reasons he went to uh, Syracuse? To yeah. Quarterback? Yep. Yep. He was, cause he was being highly touted at Syracuse and, he wanted to play both sports and coach K said, uh, you can play one sport, come play basketball. That's all you're playing. So, and I think he wanted to, he preferred basketball over football, but I just, he seems like a good person and a good guy and, and, and played hard, always played hard. He was a great teammate, but he was limited in what he could do. So at the end of the year, if he's not able to do, the one thing we need him to do, I mean, you got to find, like Jack White was this year. Jack White was hitting jump shots, and at some point he wasn't hitting shots, and you weren't seeing him anymore. So it's just one of those things where you have a job to do, and if you can't do the job, they unfortunately have to find somebody else that can do it. So, All right, we got Demarcus Nelson, more of a scoring point guard. If you want to call him a point guard, I mean, a little bit of initiator. I probably wouldn't call him much of a point guard. I'm a grown man. Score. That's what you can call him. Uh, Mr. Muscles, yeah, That's absolutely. Oh, man. Um, yeah, we got John Shire, who pretty much played every role. I, I mean, I think a lot of people don't even remember. He was like the sixth man starting out. At, no, he, he actually, no, he did start his freshman season. He was a sixth man on the 2018. I mean, he played starter minutes, but uh, he just basically did whatever Kay needed him to do. And they went from uh, Paulus to they tried Nolan Smith out at point guard. Nolan Smith wasn't quite ready. So then they went to Shire at the end of uh, – 2009 and they discovered hey we have something and uh then when uh, they teamed up with nolan smith the next year made for a hell of a backcourt even though it was still getting there in 2009 with elliot williams it was a shame that elliot had to leave but uh yeah i mean shire a lot more threes than twos we talk about athleticism at point guard that's not something you generally talk about um with john shire i still remember uh, doug gottlieb he uh he called 2010 duke alarmingly unathletic um, so that that was fun. Um, but uh, Shire, just the intelligence and how he ran that team and the strength and the craftiness. I mean, he was bigger than a lot of point guards, and I think he used that size to his advantage. Uh, you got Nolan Smith, who wasn't expecting to play point guard. He he could be that scoring and initiator type of guy. But when Kyrie went down, he was the point guard. Like uh, there, was, there was not another option. Um, and uh, Nolan... He's one of those guys that shot a lot more twos than threes because I think Kay was just like, this is the guy. We'll just roll with whatever. Gave Nolan total freedom, which Kay doesn't do too much, to be honest, with point guards, no matter the experience. And Nolan, I mean, like I said, they were gelling. And by, by that 2011 ACC tournament final, I mean, they looked almost unbeatable. Uh, but it is what it is. Kyrie, I mean, Kyrie was Kyrie. There's, a, I mean... All right, um, Seth Curry. Seth Curry. Uh, Seth is interesting because um, 
At Liberty, he was the knockdown shooter, went to Duke. He was talked about as someone who could possibly be a point guard. Never quite in that role. I don't think he ever quite got comfortable. It was kind of in the middle. And then when 2013 came, I think he was much more – it fit his natural skill set more because that's when that's when uh, I think it became that duo with Quinn Cook because Quinn, some forget that he had a knee injury. Was it DeMatha or Oak Hill? I think it was Oak Hill. He had a uh, knee injury, and it hadn't healed when he started at Duke as a freshman – in 2012, they went overseas for a trip. He couldn't even go with them. And uh, his minutes started to increase a little bit, but it's just he wasn't quite ready to be the guy he would become. And uh, so Duke didn't have that natural point guard. And Seth and Austin Rivers kind of switched on and off. But, I mean, eventually when you have Tyler Thornton in there kind of mixing up, I mean, you have three guys. None of them are natural point guards. And it was just it – w- it was tough and uh, – We'll talk about the 2012 team again, but uh, I think Seth is more natural in that 2013 role. Austin Rivers, more of the scoring, initiating type. Tyler Thornton, more of the Wojo type of he'd shoot when he's wide open, but you don't want him shooting too much. Um, I mean, tough, but limited in ability. Quinn Cook. Quinn is someone who's interesting because, okay, let me, what are your opinions of, uh, how do you feel about Quinn Cook's um Kind of the trajectory of how his career went. He was one of those players that when he first came to Duke, I was not a huge fan of him. I wasn't a huge fan of his game. I wasn't a huge fan of his decision making. He just, to me, in, in the nicest way possible, I mean, he seemed overrated to me. People were hyping him up like he was this great, he was going to be this great scorer and great this, great that. And But I'll tell you what as he progressed and as he got better and as he got to his 11th and 12th, 11th and 12th, there's a, there's a teacher talking right there. When he got into his junior and senior season, we, he, you could just tell, you could just tell that he's made a huge stride. And, and we don't win that championship. We don't come close to winning that championship without him. So. All right. So Quinn, yeah. I mean, in 2012, like I was saying, wasn't quite, the health wasn't there. 2013. Quinn, I mean, he was a feisty dude, and uh, it was kind of the um, the William Avery principle of, yeah, Duke was winning. But he really wasn't doing what Kay wanted him to do. He wasn't playing within the offense. You look at the three-point attempts to two-point attempts, and he was shooting, I mean, he averaged, uh, let's see, 6.2 two-point attempts per game and 3.9 three-point attempts. And while on many teams under many coaches, that would be fine, I mean, obviously it needs context in terms of how he's getting those buckets, but K, it's not the point guard type of role, and I think it just made K crazy. So even as he was having a really pretty good year in 2013, the team was having a great year. K stuck with him there, but I think the trust became an issue, and that's why the next year it was just, it was almost a mind game between K and Cook, and Cook would start and go to the bench, and it's tough when your minutes are being replaced by a guy like Tyler Thornton, and no disrespect to Tyler Thornton. Played hard, but, I mean, Quinn Cook, a lot more skilled. And I think towards the end of 2014, Cook really began to accept the role. And, I mean, you, that even against Mercer, I know not a good game, but Cook, pretty damn good game on offense. He shot 7 for 10. I think he scored, like, 30 points or somewhere near it. I mean, he was... 
he was becoming the outside shooter. He always had the catch and shoot ability, but he really just that was what he needed to do. So the junior season, five three point attempts per game compared to uh, four two point attempts. His uh, senior season, 6.63 point attempts compared to 4.62 point attempts per game. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it was the role case. Trust was there. Also being able to play off ball with Tyus running the point guard. I think that worked out. But it's one of the more interesting excuse me, trajectories of a point guard under a K system. Tyus Jones. Tyus is interesting because he's one of the guys not an outside shooter. But because he played so much off-ball with Quinn, he was able to still be a scorer. I mean, there was only two games all season he made more than two threes. One was the first game of the season against Presbyterian. The other was against Pitt when he uh, shot four of six. Besides that, never more than two threes in a game. And it's interesting because you think back to Tyus. Virginia. You think, yes, yeah, big, I mean, big shots. Yeah, more than just Virginia. I just... For some reason, I think of a bunch of three-point shots, and they didn't really happen. I mean, Tyus was a master at really cutting into that lane, slicing into the lane, and Trey has a lot of those same abilities. But uh, that's why I don't want to say too much, but somebody needs to uh, be able to team up with Trey to allow him to play more off-ball this year because I think that's when he'll excel the most. Hopefully, he has improved his shot, but I think if someone can act in the point guard role occasionally, allowing Trey to play off ball. That'll help. But I don't want to go into too much into uh, I agree. this year. All right. Derek Thornton couldn't shoot outside. I mean, that's basically it. It's it's unfortunate. I mean, you can't shoot outside. I don't know. I mean, great defender, unselfish, great playmaker. I believe he was the MVP of the uh, 2K Classic early on. Teammates really liked him. Couldn't shoot outside. Never earned K's trust. When K was out, um, for a game against Georgia Tech and Georgia Tech uh, Capel coached that game. All of a sudden, Derek Thornton looked like himself again. A lot of uh, pick and roll. But when Kay came back, I think Kay was just like sick that day. Thornton uh, lost the trust again and Grayson Allen pretty much ran the offense. Frank Jackson, that scoring initiator type. Frank actually, he did a pretty good job and I thought he should have been able to run the offense more consistently. I thought it ran fine with him. I mean, the 2017 team, no matter what they did, the offense was great. So, I, I mean, you could have put anyone there. I mean, I think Kay took that a little far when he put Matt Jones at point guard. Because, <laughs> uh, Matt Jones, love him to death, one of my favorite Dukies. But, like, this whole thing with Kay putting guys he trusts there over guys who might be best in the point guard role, Again, it's that military background. I can't say it's that for sure, but Matt Jones, you knew he was going to do exactly what Kay wanted. And sometimes it's that important when you have a team as talented as that 2017 team, and I'm talking about offense specifically. Sometimes, I, I mean, Matt Jones works. But it's interesting because uh, Grayson, as explosive as he was, as much as I wanted to see him play off ball, somehow in 2016, 2017, 2018, he just kept ending up the uh, initiator of that half-court offense, and it made my head explode many times. And, I mean, you could see how much better Duke ran as a team with Trevon DeVal. If you look at his individual stats, sometimes you don't see that, but that's what I try to do during the season is really take the context and go over specific plays and how they did at certain times show. Because if you're just looking at 
basic stats, you won't see it. But they were better with Trevon Duval, and it's a shame that Grayson never really got to play as much off-ball as I had hoped. Final two, R.J. Barrett and Trey Jones. I pretty much talked about them. Now, Trey, great vision, can be a great point guard. I'm not sure about Kay's system. Hopefully it changes. I don't think he would have stayed if there hadn't been some sort of agreement. I know Kay supposedly doesn't promise anything, but it's tough to imagine Trey in the same role as he was in last year. And uh, R.J. Barrett, that scoring initiator. So uh, I guess if anyone in the future, if they want me to do, I have actually, I have it all written down, I've deep-dived it myself, about pick and roll. The types of players um, and the types of teams the K's use pick and roll with the most, I think it's really interesting. Pick and roll has gone down to the point where Duke used to be among the top teams in pick and roll. Last year, I think they were something like ranked 342 out of 353 teams. They just aren't using it. They just aren't using it. And and when they were, it was pretty much RJ. So it's tough to say he should have changed up the offense when that offense, I mean, it was going well, but not in the half court. When you look deeper, not in the half court. Well, the half court so, was brutal last year. Yep. So uh, all right, those are the Duke point guards. Any, any, any last thoughts on the point guards? No, I'm just hoping that our current point guard this year uh, tends to um, – be able to maybe play, a little, like you mentioned, a little more off the ball, but I want to see him develop a little more of a shot and stuff because I think he could be dynamic if he can just, you know, create some sort of effectiveness from the perimeter because I love everything else he does as a point guard. Like everything, his his ability to pass, his ability to read a defense, his ability to play defense. Like I love every single thing he does except for the fact that he, he almost looks scared to take a jump shot. So that's really hard to succeed in that point guard role when you're refusing to take a jump shot almost essentially. So yeah, and, I'd uh, like to see him be a little more aggressive. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying we saw it first against Louisville. That was the first team before everyone noticed it. Like a bunch of games later, that other teams were just ignoring. Yeah, they're just hanging, the perimeter. hanging in the, in, inside the arc. Yeah, I mean, he, he showed a – he had that one outlier game against Virginia Tech, but I'll talk more about uh, Trey in later episodes, but I definitely agree. This were The bigs, we're going to roll through faster because the point guards, I think, they're, they're like I've really I devoted a lot of time to the history, and not even recently. It's just I've always been really interested in uh, the Duke point guards. And again, in terms of anyone wants me to ever do a deep dive on pick and roll, not just the point guards, but who is getting pick and roll, how often it's done, I, I have all of that down, so let me know, Duke Basketball Corner at Gmail. All right, the bigs. We have Mark Allery, Jay Billis, Martin Nesley, Ala Abdulnabi, George Burgeon, Clay Buckley, Crawford Palmer, uh, Cherokee Parks, Eric Meek, Greg Newton, Taman Domzalski, Chris Burgess, Elton Brand, Carlos Boozer, Casey Sanders, Shavlik Randolph, Sheldon Williams, Michael Thompson, Eric Botang, Brian Zubek, Jaleel Okafor, Marshall Plumley, Wendell Carter, Antonio Vrankovic, Marquise Bolden. So we go power forwards with no outside shot, I'll say. I mean, Elton Brand, I guess he kind of had a mid-range. Um, we got Mason Plumley, Emil Jefferson, Chase Jeter, Javin Delorier, and uh, Zion Williamson. If you want to call Zion a power forward, I would call him just a freak. Uh, power forwards with a mid-range game. Lance Thomas, Josh Harrison, God love him when he could catch the ball. 
Miles and Miles Plumley. Stretch fours. We got Danny Ferry, Christian Leitner, Rashawn McLeod, Mike Dunleavy, uh, Shane Battier. I guess Mike Dunleavy and Shane Battier, they would kind of switch off between threes and stretch fours. Um, Josh McRoberts, I'm not, I, I don't know, it's kind of tough to call him a stretch four. He really couldn't shoot well, but yeah. Um, Ryan Kelly, Jabari Parker, Rodney Hood, Justice Winslow, Brandon Ingram, Marvin Bagley, and Wendell Carter. So in terms of the centers, the uh, I guess what you would call classic centers, Duke hasn't had a lot of success with them. Um, I mean, basically you got, I mean, there's Sheldon, there's Boozer, and uh, there is Brand. Those are obviously the standouts. Besides them, I mean, would you call Wendell Carter a center? I would. I, I think Joel was pretty good, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, obviously Jaleel Okafor. Yeah. Uh, that's my bad. All right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, would call, I would call Wendell Carter a center. I think we realized how how much we struggled when he went out, so. Yeah. Even he, I think he's almost in a different – I mean, he should be in the center category, mm-hmm. but he's almost in a different category in terms of how much he could stretch right. the floor. And, uh, I mean, just that uh, high-low action from him to Bagley. I mean, he could create – I don't think Duke used him anywhere near – to the possibility and the potential of how they could have, especially with the pick and pop. But in terms of, I guess, if you if you want to include him in the classic center list of uh, some of those guys, how would you say Duke, or how how would you feel Duke has done with classic centers? Not the stretch, not the stretch fours, not the uh, mid range power forwards, um, the classic centers. You're talking basically back to the basket type of of centers, right? Yeah, and then plus Wendell Carter. Yeah. I mean, not very good. We we have not we don't have a really great track record. For a while, the bigs didn't even want to come to Duke because we weren't utilizing them correctly. So we weren't developing bigs. So it's nice to see now like the Vernon Carries and stuff of the world that are coming. So, but again, I mean, we we've had a couple really good back to the basket type of point. Uh, centers but beyond that i mean we've been pretty much a three guard type of offense and and relied on our guard play for the majority of of many of the years actually yeah i remember when uh people were ready to have a victory parade for uh coach k when mason Plumley in his senior year he became i guess you could say a go-to type of guy i think it's because i mean he Again, love him, but I mean, he would take an hour and a half to make a move on the post. So 2012, the outside shooting really didn't pose a threat enough to give him space down low. But 2013, outside shooting everywhere. So that allowed him more time, and he was able to become. So everyone was like, oh, look, um, he has uh, he's developed under K. K developed a big man, and everyone celebrated, and the world lived happily ever after. But, uh, yeah, so Mason I guess, was interesting. But, I mean, in terms of, unless you just have a guy like Brand and Boozer who are just beasts from the get-go or Zion, I mean, I think with K, those stretch fours are vital guys who, I guess some of them, not all, but some of them um, could play center. Although, no, I mean, I think the stretch fours, we're talking just front court with the stretch fours. I mean, those have been some of K's specialties with uh, Ferry, Leitner, I mean, McLeod, Dunleavy, Battier, uh, Kelly, uh, Parker, Hood, Winslow, Ingram. And, I mean, depending on if you want to call Carter, I mean, those stretch fours. 
that has definitely been a, a positive in uh, the Duke basketball history under K. I think that's some of the ones we remember most. You agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I just have a, I just have an issue with with our teams when we're like, like last year was just so weird. It was such an outlier last year because we just could not shoot the basketball at all. And and we weren't good in half court. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that we didn't have a legit stretch floor on our team. Having, when we lost Ryan Kelly for that period of time where he hurt his foot, like our offense looked clueless. Like it just looks. Do you think the stretch four is? Uh, esen- I think it's essential for our team to be. I think that's okay, why it was so un- important to get Matthew hurt this year. Here's an unfair question, um, and I understand it's. I understand how unfair it is. It's. It shouldn't be necessary to give a uh, black and white answer, but just for fun, what's more important to Duke, a point guard or a stretch four? They, have they ever really used the point guard correctly? So I would say stretch four. I mean, they pretty much grab whoever guy on that team, and they're like, oh, yeah, you can play. Oh, Matt Jones, you look like you can dribble a basketball and pass it to this guy. So why don't you go out there and play point? I think a stretch four is is the last couple championships we've won. We've had a huge – we've had a stretch four there. We had a point forward when we won in 2015 with Winslow. But the year we won in 2010, we had had, um, Singler. The year before, the years, other years we won, we, we've always had, you know, the Dunleavies, the bad, like those type of guys that could help with spacing. Last year, we didn't, the only thing that helped with spacing is we just gave Zion the ball and everybody moved out of the way. Like that was the only spacing we really had last year. So I'm excited about this year because I think that we're more, it's more of a traditional Duke roster that we've seen in the past. All right. Let's get into it. 2012. No. You have the you have the floor. Start us off. What's your issues with 2012? Well, okay. We we all know they lost to Lehigh. Can I give there's you no, two no... two words? Austin Rivers. Go for it. Oof. I just he was my and I'm gonna go on record. He's become a good pro, like a good ball player. He's he's evolved and and he was probably my least favorite Duke player that has ever played at Duke. Do you want to add more context? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was just waiting to see what your facial expressions look like. Cause what? I just did. Now don't get me wrong. That shot he hit against Carolina was. No, no, no. I hate when people do that. Was Pretend great. he didn't hit the shot. Just talk about him. I don't, I just, I don't know. I just didn't like the way he played. I didn't like his, I didn't. He was a terrible defender. He too much ISO ball. Like I just, I don't know. We had good. We had some good players on that team, and I feel that he just. I don't know. I feel like he hurt our roster because he he truly. I feel like he was. He only cared about himself and cared about his own self shooting. So, I just he he made our. I feel like he made our team worse than better. So you think that Duke team had the potential to do a lot better? That team didn't have the potential to do much of anything long-term. Like, they, they overachieved by getting a two-seed, I think. I think they overachieved. I think Curry Curry and Kelly and those guys, you know, we had 
we definitely had talent, but I just I feel like his decision making and his his more focused on being a shoot first point guard and ball handler. He just did too much ISO and in our offense just offense was terrible when he was in there. It seemed we didn't have any flow to it. He would take bad shots. He couldn't hit a free throw. I mean, it was just, it was just, I don't know. It was a very frustrating 2012 for me. And I was on record with all my friends that know I'm a huge Duke fan. And they'll always, oh, how's Austin? You like him less than Austin Rivers, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I just, I don't know. I just wasn't a huge fan of, of his style of play. I didn't think it fit Duke at all. All right. So, I mean, first we got to think about how do how do we actually remember the the team results? So, I I think many just remember how the season ended and that's it. That that that's all that matters. But if you look a little closer, they were 26 and 4. They were 13 and 2 in the ACC mm-hmm. heading into the final home game versus UNC. Mhm. I mean, they were absolutely elite. I will say they weren't the most aesthetically pleasing team to watch, and I think that does affect um, things. I think there were some interesting aspects about that team. I think right away, when everyone, the first time you tune into a Duke game, they barely escape against Belmont at home. No. Oh, wait, was that Belmont or Bradley? Um, it Belmont. Was... It was Belmont. And so, so... That's your first look at this Duke team. So immediately it's like, oh, my God, I just wanted to enjoy a blowout or something because that's what typically happens. Then uh, they go to Ohio State for the uh, Big Ten, ACC Big Ten, get the crap kicked out of them. I think that was when uh, Paulus was actually an assistant coach at uh, Ohio State. So those two games, and they also lose to Temple in the uh, non-conference. So those are like three losses. I mean – Especially the way, or not three losses. I mean, Belmont, they won. Almost, you could say, it felt like a loss. But it immediately, it brought to everyone's attention, this team is going to have to work harder. And that's when, oh, a coach like Kay, you would think he could help matters. I mean, because even going back to, like, the, the 94-95 team, I mean, that team didn't make the tournament, finished 13-18. and 18. They lost a lot of their ACC games by somewhat close margins. And that's when a coach like Kay... It's not a matter of X's and O's at that point. It's just a matter of, like, there's there's a feeling that you get when you play for a guy like that, which can make the difference in any sort of close game. And, uh, hey, man, maybe it even made a difference in terms of getting very lucky this past season in uh, a lot of games they did not deserve to win. But, um, yeah, Duke won a lot of close games. And uh, similar to what I'll talk about with uh, kind of things that stick out among Duke historically – the team is a terrible defensive team. Like, they were just a terrible defensive team. And when you look at the way the roster was constructed, it was a lot of guys that they just hadn't had a lot of experience with legit roles. I mean, they, they had been Singler and Shire and Nolan Smith. And, I mean, they were, and they were kind of just, they would play in the background. Nobody could create their own shot. And Cape pretty much... He had the offense set up like 2014, and he had the offense set up like 2017. I mean, 2017, that was the most vanilla offense I've ever seen. It was horrific. It was just basically clear out and uh, 
give Ingram Kennard and Grayson space. And that's what he did with his Duke team, but Austin Rivers was the only one who could create. With So without Quinn Cook really being healthy, without a, without a point guard, I mean, Tyler Thornton, there's only, I mean, what threat does he pose on offense? I mean, Mason Plumlee, as I, as I stated before, he, he takes a while to be able to make a post move. Seth Curry, he played well, he played well at times. And, uh... Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was tough. I mean, and then you have a guy like uh, Andre Dawkins who could be flaming hot and then just not hit anything for a year. I mean, you never knew with him, and when he wasn't hitting, he's not providing too much else. And these guys that I've mentioned, you talk about Austin Rivers on D, Seth Curry's not exactly a lockdown defensive no, player. not at all. Ryan Kelly's not a lockdown defensive player. Mason Plumlee is not a lockdown defensive player. Um, Andre Dawkins, not a lockdown defensive player. Tyler Thornton, he looks like a bull, and he, and he kind of re- reminds you of Steve Wojo. Didn't play a Steve Wojo type of defense. So there's nobody on that team who really is, you're able to count on. So, yeah, Austin Rivers, easy to point him out. But at the same time, I mean, 26-4, and 13-2. And guess who the only Duke team in history is to uh, go undefeated on the road, besides 1999. That team. Oh, wait. Wait, 1999, were they 15-1 and one or? Yeah, no, they were 16-0. So, yeah, obviously 1999. Did it, did it, um, undefeated. Didn't 2015 go undefeated on the road? No. They lost to NC State, and I think Miami was at home. They're both one at home. of those two was. They're both at home. They lost to Cat Barber really? and them at home, and then they lost to... Miami at home. They were both back-to-back home games, I believe. All right, fill a couple seconds while I look this up. So, yeah, I mean, it, I don't want to come off as that guy who absolutely despises that absolutely despises Austin Rivers, but I just okay, I got it. All right, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead if you got it. They actually, they also lost to uh, they lost to NC State and Notre Dame on the road. That year was Notre Dame on the road too. Okay, with Bonzi and those guys. Yeah, because then the next game was Virginia when uh, Rashid Solomon got dismissed. Mm, yeah. It was. It was. It was after the Notre Dame game. Was that when so, we wanted the buzzer and Grayson Allen's foot hit the ground, or, or close to it when we beat Virginia? I remember that no, game no, no. too. Um, no, but Gr- I, Grayson wasn't playing in big games in 2015 until later. Yeah, I. I. So I'm not a huge. I just wasn't a huge fan of, of his style of play. I thought it was a little too, you know, fling by the seat, you know, go by the seat of his pants type of offense. And I just, I don't know, there wasn't much flow to it. And, you know, you, I'm, I'm sure mixing in the fact that CJ McCollum put up a hundred on us in the tournament, that doesn't really sit well with me either. But I mean, I'm not disagreeing that that team wasn't, that team overachieved bottom line because that team was not that talented. And so, but you would hope that I mean, Kay. I know he'll. He's admitted X's and O's isn't his specialty. I'm not saying he's not good at it. I'm not saying he doesn't know what he's doing. But right. he is a he's a leader of men. That's what he does mm-hmm. best. X's and O's. He he is great, but that's not his specialty. Right. And what he and what he lacked, I don't know if it was the ability or the willingness or what. That team, the offensive style never changed. And then. It, all hope was almost gone. When Ryan Kelly, 
He sprained his foot. Duke fell apart. I mean, obviously getting annihilated by UNC, they had Ryan Kelly. So it's not like he was the, uh, he worked magic. But at the same time, I mean, when he went out, they were done. They were absolutely done. And then, and so you look at some of, some of those guys. I mean, Thornton after 16 games, 12 of 21 from three. Pretty good. I mean, obviously he's not taking a lot, but when he takes, he hits. Thornton the remaining games, 15 of 58, 28%. Curry, he was 10 of 41 during the three losses in four games final stretch, including one of nine, 0 of six from three before making his final attempt with 90 seconds left and fouling out in 25 minutes against Lehigh. So when they're up against Lehigh, they've lost Ryan Kelly. They're, they're at their weakest point. They need anybody on offense they can get. They have no one besides Austin Rivers. Seth Curry can't, he can't get in foul trouble immediately. It was just leaving Rivers on an island. I mean, Rivers had to do everything. So, and if that game, I mean, it was, it's almost interesting because I actually watched a lot of it again. Duke started out, it was either 4-4. Four four. They either made their first four or first five shots of the game. And, I mean, it look, they, but you could even see at that point when uh, I think Mason actually, he, they were all dunks by him. They were struggling to create anything. I mean, Austin was running the offense exactly the way Kay wanted. He was deferring. He's doing whatever. But just like every game, he had to finally just take control because it would always work the entire shot clock. And then he just had to go ISO. If there was something available before, if something was created before, it might not have been necessary. And I'm not trying to take away all blame from Rivers. There was plenty of times when he forced action. There's, I mean, there is a reason when I think Duke's highest free throw rate, or at least one of their highest free throw rates of any season, definitely the highest of any recent times was that year because they just had to do whatever possible. So Rivers just had to go in and create contact to get to be able to have Duke get any points. And he did a great job of that. And he sold contact really well. And a lot of times it wasn't pretty. When I talk about that was not an aesthetically pleasing team to watch. A lot of it was Rivers just going in, creating contact and chucking something up. And yeah, obviously you're hoping something better can be created. But when you look at the way that offense is being run, why isn't something being created within the offense? That's the question. So when Ryan Kelly went out, he took away all the space where you could have dumped it inside to Mason Kelly, Mason Kelly, Mason Plumley more. It just took away all potential uh, back to the basket action with Mason, and it's just—I don't know what else they were supposed to do besides Austin Rivers going ISO. Because with K's teams of the past, he's been more creative and working within team concepts. That's why when I said like Duke players early on, the '80s, early '90s. They didn't have a lot of success in the NBA because they would be really good via kind of team offense. I would have loved to have seen that in 2012. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's just interesting the way people think about that team. I, I remember even uh, there was uh, something where the, the final, that the Austin River shot versus UNC, it was shown and some Duke fan, like, lashes out and say, like, look at Seth Curry trying to yell at Austin Rivers to pass, and he's ignoring him. That's how Duke That's how Duke was that year. And then when you look at it again, and you can see Brian Kelly's about to back into Seth Curry. Seth Curry was telling him to go away. 
and he and he was telling Rivers to shoot. So it, people want to make up whatever soft narratives they want with him. And Austin Rivers, people have said like, oh, he doesn't care about Duke. He never came back. Then he did come back and visited, and everyone just you, you find another reason to hate him. And I understand. Wasn't the most aesthetically pleasing player to watch, but Duke was missing vital elements when when you talk about a point guard and a, a stretch four. At least they had Ryan Kelly as a stretch four. They lost him. They never had a point guard. It was what it was. I, I don't know. I guess just just his numbers weren't his numbers didn't lie either about how he wasn't very. I mean, he scored. He shot in the thirties from the three point line. He he was a one to one assist to turnover type of guy. He shot sixty five percent from the free throw line. Those are all. Terrible numbers for a Duke point guard or a Duke initiator. He point guard. But he had no choice to be the point guard. He had to be the point guard. He had the ball in his hand at all times. He had to be because we had nobody else right. to do it. Right. So, and it wasn't, it's, it wasn't natural form. So, and there wasn't talent around him, offensive talent. So I just, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. At the same time, I don't know what you wanted him to do. I mean, if you're just going to say his numbers weren't good and the team lost to Lehigh, that's, that it is what it is. But he did everything possible to carry that team as far as they would get. And with Ryan Kelly, that was a great team. I mean, they were the number six offensive team in the country before the tournament. Number six. I mean, there's only a, a few spots that are higher than that. So... I mean, and where were they defensively? Some teams are just not going to be the best and most pleasing to watch. And, and that was one of them. If you're going to blame one player for that, that's your uh, that that's your right. But I think he was actually the one player that was able to save that team from being a train wreck. And, and the season ended as a train wreck anyways. So it ended up being a train wreck. I mean, well, yeah, that's when – so, I mean, that's when we're, where we definitely disagree because, I mean, I understand why you look – I mean, first-round loss, it's, impo- it's impossible to say it ended how you hoped. But that's why, like, I I, I don't know. I just I, – I pay such close attention and appreciate everything during the regular season to avoid just basing it on that last thing. Obviously, you lose first round. Season is a, uh, a failure in, in that regard. But there's a lot of great moments. There was – uh, I I enjoyed. I'll find a way to enjoy whatever about any team, especially when they're this good. If they don't, I mean, they've been to two Final Fours since two thousand four. If you're gonna say that every team is a failure, besides those two teams that, of course, won the national championship, then it's pretty easy to see every team in a negative light. But I, I mean, that's just me. I'm not saying it's better or worse. I just try. That's why I try so hard to really go to uh, pay attention to every moment and do these podcasts throughout each season so you can go back and kind of it's it's just fun. The season is fun to me and it's there's a there's a huge gray area between either championship or bust or how could you just say like it's like the every team everybody gets a ribbon kind of thing just because they tried hard. I'm not saying either one of those. I think there's a big gray area in between. So that's just my opinion. All right, so, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously we're on totally opposite sides of 2012, but uh, 
I try to find the context, and you are uh, correct in saying that, team, the result wasn't what you had hoped. Fair? Yeah, I mean, I just – that was one of the rare, rare years of Duke basketball that I just didn't enjoy watching them play. I just didn't – I did not enjoy watching them play. That just was not that's, a fun team for I me. Mean, that I can understand. The, the whole blame Austin Rivers thing is that's what I really don't. And the reason I didn't enjoy watching him play is because of the way that Austin Rivers played. That's So if if Tyler Thornton had the ball more, is that what you wanted? Well, Tyler Thornton had the ball more. We're, I mean, we're, we're going to end up in the same spot regardless. We're out in the first round. So e- either way, with Rivers with the ball or without the ball, that is that was a – that was a basketball team that that was way overrated all season long. They overachieved, and that's great. But as a Duke fan, that's not what I want to see as a team overachieve. I want a team to meet expectations, like and be good and consistently be good. And that team just you knew from day one that team didn't have it. Okay, I mean, I think they were good, and they were. I mean, they were elite, but did they weren't the they weren't the best. And they and with Ryan Kelly out, they dropped. Off a cliff. They had no chance. So whatever chance they had... Was gone. Became non-existent without Kelly. Right. Because, I mean, the next season, you talk about 2013, you think, oh, that team, they put it they put it together. See, they had the talent. When Ryan Kelly was out, I think they went like 9-4. and four. They weren't that great. No. So, but he came back, and they looked great again. And their only losses with Ryan Kelly in 2013 were, uh, what's his name? Um... The uh, who's Maryland player? Um, Gravis Vasquez. He, no. After that. Oh man, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting this. It was. Uh, all right, let me let me find this real quick. It was. He had, he had like the game of his life. Um, Des Wells. It was the Des oh, Wells wow. game for Maryland, and then losing to the best team in the country in Louisville. With Ryan Kelly, they were 21 and two. Without him, I believe it was nine four. So, were they a crappy team without Ryan Kelly? He came back, so we didn't have to know. And there was also another player in Rashid Suleiman who could create off the dribble, and they had a point guard in Quinn Cook. So you had the stretch four with Ryan Kelly, you had the point guard with Quinn Cook, and you had another create a guy who can create on the offensive end, and uh, Rashid Suleiman. Life is better that way, and K is not then. He's not required to be as creative on offense. And, uh, right. Yeah. I just think there's context surrounding everything. But, uh, either way, I think that was an interesting 2012 conversation. All right. Let's finish up with, uh, some, uh, some of your favorite things, analytics. Um, and, uh, that is what I'm actually doing my closing 180 on. So, uh, it'll, it'll, it'll be, I don't want to comment overall too much on analytics, but, um, these are just some things that that have stuck out. And uh, all right, so Duke teams. It's interesting in terms of the Ken Palmero. The Ken Palmero, he added a couple more years to make it 23. It's Ken Pomeroy, and so it's been since 1997. And when you look at Duke, I mean the things that stick out more than anything. It's just blatant. Are Defense, bad defensive teams, they have no chance. There's just no chance at all. When uh, when, when you think about all right, the bads, what what do you think are 
Go over one, two, three. There's been four atrocious defensive teams in the Ken Palm era, and I'll and I'll tell you right now, they all occurred. Uh, they've all occurred in the last decade. If you, what do you think are are those four? The ones that have won no, a championship. The worst defensive teams at Duke. Um, the worst defensive teams at Duke. I think 2012 is definitely in there. They were ranked 79. Um, out. The defense, I believe, with Bagley. That defense was not good. That team was uh, amazing at defense. Not, not the bag. The the year before the 2017. Yes. Yeah. Right, that yes. is one, two, three, four. That yeah, that is uh wait two thousand that yeah that uh, of the four that was the best but still fourth worst. Yeah, that was in there. Um, so you've named the fourth worst and the third worst. Can you name the first? Can you name the worst and the runner up? Actually, they were tied, so it's tied for the worst. I'm trying to think what teams we had that were. I mean, because I. I remember the majority of the good Duke teams, and I know that 15 wasn't one of them. I know 10 wasn't one of them. I mean, the teams that won were the teams that were good defensively. So it's I try to cling more to the successful teams than the non-successful teams. But I would anticipate was that team at Paulus brutal. No, I talked about no. This is all one in the last years. decade. So all right. So I'll just say um, 2014 and 2016. 2014 was. 2016 was Ingram and them, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah. yeah, and when K stopped playing um, Derek Thornton as much because of whatever reasons, they lost uh, really their only defensive stopper. Luke Kennard is uh, he tries. Well, not I'm good. not sure about try. Yeah, he tries um, really hard. Yeah. Grayson, yeah. Um, not a good defender. I mean, Marshall Plumley, he tries. So, uh, yeah, I mean. That was a rough one. Um, yeah, 2016 was just atrocious. And uh, 2014, Jabari Parker should not be playing center. That's all I've got to say about that. Like, I, just, I felt so bad for him. He got so much blame. I'm like, you are sticking this guy at center. Like, what in the world is he supposed to do? So, I don't know. I mean, there are plenty of other weaknesses besides that. Tyler Thornton, obviously up top, and Quinn wasn't... Uh, Specializing on defense at that point either, and there was there were some issues. Rodney Hood up and down, but uh, Hood was probably the best thing about that defense, I'll say. Either way, I mean the 2014 team. It's interesting how many talk about the 2012. Yet they they lost a Mercer, a team where like that team didn't even have like name a player on Mercer. I mean that's a one. I think everyone just loved Jabari Parker. He was like everyone's little teddy bear. So uh, everyone's really afraid to mention 2014. Yeah, I was not a – they were brutal. I was not – I don't know. I wasn't a huge fan of that roster either. The, you could tell in the big moment those guys were I – mean, Rodney Hood looked, looked like a fish out of water in that in that tournament. So. All right. Um, so an interesting set, defensive rebounding. Duke has been basically the worst – at defensive rebounding forever. I don't, and before it was kind of considered like, oh, it's because they have that pressure, denial, extended defense. So, yeah, they're not going to be, it takes, so they're going to be extended out, it takes them longer to get in and, and uh, defensive rebound. Not so much anymore. There's not uh, too much extended defensive pressure. Like, th that's something that's they been consistent. 
consistently bad. Even as the last couple of years, their offensive rebounding has been really good. Uh, the offensive rebounding, I mean, they were number one in the country in 2018, 14 last year. And at the same time, I mean, they were uh, they were 238 in uh, defensive rebounding last year, 236, 208, 330. I mean, they literally, in 2017, they finished almost last in in the country. My condolences to the teams who actually were a worse defensive rebounding team than them. Like, I mean, watching them play, it's the frustration. They finally, in some of those teams that were so bad defensively, they would finally get a stop, and they'd have to defend again. It's like, okay, this is That one category literally cost them two NCAA tournament games. Indiana in mm-hmm. 2002 and West Virginia in 2007. Yeah. I think both those teams got something about like 60% of their missed shots. Like 60%. I mean, that's, this is not something like, oh, you analytics nerd. No, I'm saying like they literally grabbed 50%. I mean, I'm sorry, 60% of every shot they missed and got another chance. This is not like some like upper level analytics thing. This is saying that Duke couldn't get the damn rebound. That's simple math. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's what I do with math. these analytics. Like I don't go deep into it. It's very obvious stuff. It's just information which tells a story. I mean, the fact that defensive rebounding in the Kempom Mare in 23 years, only three times has it ranked in the top 150. One of them is 2007, yeah. but the other two, 2010 and 2015. Interesting. And that's not even, like, good defensive rebounding. That's just not atrocious. That's basically what you're hoping for. Just don't be atrocious. And I'm not saying it's cause and effect. If you are not atrocious, you will automatically win the championship. But it, it is... It's, no, but you give yourself yeah, a it's chance. It's just something to notice. It's just something to notice right there where you could lose NCAA tournament games if you don't rebound at all. And you could... I mean, if you are not horrific, you could win. All right, four Duke teams in, tw- in 23 years have ranked top 10 in offensive rebounding. That would be 99, 2010, 2018, 2019. Not, not hard to figure that one out. 2010 with that Zubek team, 2018, 2019. 2018, you had the duo with uh, Bagley and Carter. 2019, you had uh, basically Zion, um, and Zion could create offensive rebounds for others. And then 1999, just everyone attacked. So... I, I mean, that was that was just... I love that team. All right. A stat that I have trouble wrapping my head around, crappy free throw rate in the one-and-done era. And that's interesting because besides the 2012 team, like I said, was pretty good. They were ranked 13th in the country. 45% free throw rate. Besides that, Duke, they've always been kind of in the below 150 around that range. And when you have... Guys who can, I mean, they're NBA ready and they can penetrate and create for others. Is the offense not creative enough or what? Because when a team like last year, I think it's, I think the obvious conclusion you could come to is teams are kind of packing it in. So they're making it tough to drive against them and draw a foul. But even so, when you have Zion and RJ, they should be able to draw fouls. But RJ had a tough time. Cam Reddish was off balance a lot. It's just really odd to me that that team was in the bottom half of the country in free throw rate because I mean you've said they were they had a lot of talent. So is there any reason why you think that a team that has such great offensive players might have trouble with uh low free throw rates? Because I mean those Duke teams of old, they were just 
they always shot tons of free throws. I mean, they were known for like shoot more free throws than the other team, make more free throws than the other team attempts. Now it's not even close to that. So, uh, is there any reasoning you might think is uh, possible? I, I think a lot of these teams shoot way too much. You know, last year's team shot a ton of threes. For whatever reason, they were you were you were given a stat. It was like one of the highest amount of threes we've taken as an actual team. And I just, I get the whole packing it in. And, but I mean, there's a reason you're that open. That's one of my favorite lines when we're playing, we'll play pickup ball or something, or or there's a reason you're that wide open. It's because you can't shoot. So get to the basket and do, you know, stay in your lane. And I think they just settle too much for perimeter jump shots and, Zion should be attacking, attacking, and attacking. Cam doesn't have the ability to attack because he doesn't have the ability to not charge. So, but certain guys like like Barrett had great control over his his body, and there's no reason those guys shouldn't have shot more free throws. Now, they probably wouldn't have went in, unfortunately, most of the free throws, but they they at least would have got teams in foul trouble and a little more than. There's there's no reason Zion shouldn't live at the free throw line. There's just not a human that can guard. Yeah, so him. I think that's what put tons of pressure on Duke last year. The fact that if you can't make from outside, you're not getting um, enough free throws. I mean, I know everyone wants to think they're yeah, not they they a terrible from? free throw shooting team. They were they were atrocious at the end of games. They were bad in general. Mm-hmm. They weren't terrible. I mean, they were about 65, 70%, no. which you would hope is better, but it was at the end of games. That's what leaves the lasting impact. Right. All right, then the, the last thing is um, turnover percentage on defense. I mean, Duke used to, it was just that always they would harass. They would, they would, they would turn you over, and that's, Pick up yeah, and court, that's right? what Duke was doing so well at for a point in time last year. But then it kind of... It rang true. Oh, wait. No, they're just doing it against crappy teams. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in the uh, when they went to Maui, they weren't turning over Gonzaga or anyone like that. But then they just kind of jacked up those stats against some uh, lower-ranked teams and, then, stats yeah, and some uh, early ACC games. So I think last year, because they were so reliant on turnovers to score, because they couldn't score in half court, I think – the fact that right. they were 111, they were in like the top 10 most of the year. But during, I believe, like the last, after NC State, I think I looked it up, they were something like 280 out of like 350. They just weren't turning them over. So they lost their ability to get, to get easier buckets. Besides last year, though, in past years, all right, we got uh, 247, 253, 223, 205, um, 156, 146, 247. I mean, this is among 350 teams. When you look at the past years, and it was like top 10. So do you think it's just because these are young guys and it takes longer to learn defense, especially man-to-man defense, which is one of the reasons why they had to switch to zone in 2018? Do you think uh, it's, it's just because there's so many more freshmen? Do you think it's a different style, or do you think defense is being taught differently? I'm I'm starting to wonder watching some of these guys that are coming in that defense is taught at all. Some of these freshmen that come in are think about it. So you have you have guys like Zion. I mean, who's a freak athletically, so obviously he may not be the best. Um like like take Jabari Parker. Jabari Parker 
was the best player on the court, regardless of where he played, at every second of his life. Do you think he truly had to dig in and get a stop in high school? Like, let's. I mean, those, dude, he was those guys don't in play the past, defense. Like, it was either this year or last year. He's like, they don't pay me to play defense. That's a quote by him. <laughs> well, at least he, he stays true to his values. So, because he didn't play defense, he doesn't play defense. So. It's like Carmelo Anthony when he, you know, you see, like, he's a scorer. I know he's a scorer because he can't, he doesn't play defense. Like, he's got to do something. So, these guys, I don't know, they just, I don't know if it's it, it's a style of play in which they play high school ball or, or where they play, but a lot of these guys are coming out and coming right into college. They're not worried about score, guarding anybody because they're just worrying about one thing, and that's scoring. So, I don't think... I feel like defense is, is is not not a priority in high school. I just don't. Teams are playing zone. Teams are playing, doing a lot of pressing and stuff like that. But in terms of man to man, I mean, when I was coaching, we'd we we'd play strictly man to man. But we had some guys who shouldn't be playing man to man. Let's be realistic. But it just seems to be something that everybody's getting away from, and, and everybody's more. With the 30-second shot clock and all that stuff, the, the emphasis is more on scoring. All right, Duke, they're a good defense in the one-and-done era. 2013, they were ranked 26. 2015, they were ranked 11. 2018, they were ranked number 9. 2019, they were ranked number 6. So, yeah, you can see those are the type, Those are the teams that either they had high success or they gave themselves a chance to. I mean, all those teams were at least in the Elite Eight. But, I mean, it, it also, yeah. it can be a little bit misleading because the, um, the defensive stats, I mean, there's the end of the year, um, adjusted defensive uh, um, efficiency in Kempom, and there, there's also another, which is going into the tournament. So if you look at uh, defense going into the tournament, um, let, let, let's see here. In 2015, let me bring that up. 2015 was uh, Duke was number 37 in the country. They finished number 11. So in six games, they brought it up to thir- from 37 to 11. So everyone's looking at that final result. They go, oh, they were elite defensively. They locked down at the end, but it was it was a journey to get there. And uh, I think everyone knows the story of like uh, how what switched about the defense, but still wasn't quite as straightforward. 2017 now, 2017 Duke was number 39 pre tourney so and Duke 2015 number 37, pretty much the same ranking. But 2017, South Carolina went crazy on them in the second half, so that number 39 went to 47 for the final result. 2015 that number 37. Went to 11 for the final result. It's amazing how it can change in such a hurry. So it's interesting how, how that happens. So there's context to everything. And uh, yeah, so I mean, those are just some stats that stuck out to me in terms of, at least during the Kempom era, some basic things of what kind of Duke does well, what they don't do well. I mean, on offense, it's wild. I mean, they're always amazing. Like, always. When I, I mean, I look down, I think the 11 worst offensive teams, they were ranked uh, 44 in, 2000, in 2007. 
They were ranked two. They're ranked number thirteen in two thousand three, two thousand five, and two thousand eight. They've been top ten every other year of the Ken Palm era. They, uh, I mean, actually, the worst they were is number eight. Besides that, so they only had one, two, three, four years out of twenty three ranked below eight. Offense is not going to be the issue ever. I mean, you can always say it could be better. It could help out the defense. There could not be as much ISO right. to kind of give more energy to the defense. But even so, offense is more often than not not the problem. Not the problem at all. And uh, yeah, I guess the, la- the last thing, offensive turnover rate. I mean, Duke was so good early on last season. So the fact they finished 112, I think it's just compared to what they were early on when they weren't turning the ball over a lot. And and they lost Zion. Hmm? You know that the period they lost Zion for a couple games, which I'm sure did not help. No, I actually either, looked that so. up. It really had no effect on their offense or defense. Really? Yeah, when you look at the stats, it, that that oh. was shocking. I mean, it affected like I mean the block uh, percentage went went way down. But like besides that, I mean, it, I mean yeah. from NC State on, it was just the Miami game where they turned Miami over a bunch, and then it was like the first 10 minutes of Syracuse when Zion created like 100 turnovers by himself in the ACC tournament. Besides that, they were way under the national average in every game with or without Zion. So, it's it's interesting. Oh. Uh, it was it was a little Jekyll and Hyde thing for Duke. All right, so that, that kind of sums up the, the last offseason pod. Just uh, It's just some context with a lot of stuff, whether it's positions, whether it's uh, the 2012 team. I think that was a uh, uh, an interesting conversation, the um, the uh, rotations, and just some stats that stick out. And obviously, we find out real quick, defense is by far the most important thing. Offense, it's easier to track. It's more fun to track. It's more fun to watch. It's more fun to debate about with friends or whoever. Defense wins championships, bottom line. Bottom line. That's how, that's how it is. But, uh, yeah, so we'll see how that goes. And... Uh, yeah, I guess to close things out. Um, so, did you come up with a uh, closing 180 for uh, for us today? Yeah, I, I actually um, I did, and I, I, it's going to be a developing theme. It seems to be a lot of things in my life. A lot of everything pretty much goes to um, goes to my family. So, I had a chance to go and play. Last week, I had a chance to play in the world tournament. Um, ended up finishing third in the world We're tournament. Talking softball, was, correct? We are, yep. And and it ended up it ended up being a great a great show for us as a Rochester team. We don't get many, you know, in New York. We don't get a, a lot of good weather, so we tend to go down and get beat up sometimes by some of these better teams where we played really well and it was great. And I was able to, um, you know, I was able to enjoy that part with my friends, but, but nothing, nothing trumps what, what I was able to do this weekend. I, I took my daughter to Disney for the first time and just being able to see her in front of the princesses and, and, and being able to, you know, bring her doing something like that was was something that I only dreamt of growing up. And once we had our daughter and stuff, my wife and I we've we've spoke and we were able to bring her to to do that and to, just to come together as a family. Um, 
the next week's a tough week. It'll be it'll be two years now that I've lost my mother. So it was good to take a step back, go spend some time with my family, spend some time with my wife and my daughter, and and just kind of sit back and reevaluate some things and come back with a clear head. And you know, I'm excited now to to take on my favorite thing in the world outside of my family, and that is is Duke basketball. So it's it's getting close. I can feel it. You know, it's nice when you start getting things in, um, you know, time. the time is coming to where everything's starting to, you know, you got football going on and family, and, and, and that's pretty much all I live by. So I'm just, you know, I was just glad to be able to do that and do something to, something different that, to break up the monotony of everyday life. So it was good to, to see her enjoy herself. Excellent. Okay, and uh, just like last time, you get a little more personal. I will kind of keep it to just random things that interest me and sometimes it'll be about sports sometimes not i might even because i'm so into music i might put in kind of five recommendations um for uh recent albums even though i'm not going to say i'm here i might just put them down every time sometimes i will say i'm on the pod but today i found it interesting because there was actually not there's not many reasonable conversations on twitter because people just like to yell things and whatever. But I did find it interesting what happened with uh, Matt Moore, who works for um, uh, the Action Network. He's been covering the NBA for a while. He started talking about analytics, specifically uh, two point uh, mid-range two-point shots compared to three-point attempts. And uh, we're kind of going deep into that. Kevin Durant responded, and it became a whole back and forth. And when I say back and forth, I don't mean a negative. I just mean that it was a really interesting conversation. Some other people got involved. In terms of Zach Levine, he wants to shoot more mid-range, but he shoots 35.8% on mid-range, and he shot 37% on threes. So three is worth more than two. So yeah, like even if you uh, if you make three out of ten threes, it's nine points. If you have to make five five out of ten mid range shots to to be better. So you have to shoot fifty percent. And it's just interesting how Kevin Durant would not accept the fact that maybe you should shoot more threes. He's just like, no, you you shoot whatever shot is open. You shoot whatever shot you want. Stop giving me these analytics. And they showed him a graph which is like forty like. 40% of mid-range shot, 40% of shots were mid-range shots in um, 2000 or something like that, and only uh, a very low percentage were made. Then they went to this year, only like 13% of uh, shots were mid-range shots, and the same percentage was made. So mid-range shot, people aren't getting better at mid-range shots. They're just taking fewer of them because it's smart. I'm not saying never take a mid-range shot. And Durant's like, no, uh, I take whatever shot's open. And everyone's like, dude, you're better than everyone. Like, no matter what shot you take, you're seven foot tall and in, like, one of the best ever. You're going to make whatever the whatever the hell you take. Like, like that goes beyond analytics. And they showed him a graph of, like how, like, how it's worked out and why it might be smarter to take it. And he's like, what? Like, don't show me graphs. Like, we're talking ball. I just want to talk ball and whatever shot people want to take. If that's the shot they think they'll make, let them take it. And and so Matt Moore, he's like, look, I'm trying to hear your opinion because I respect it. And you're smart. You, you have more experience. You know what's going on. You're involved. 
I want to hear yours. And it's just, it was just very interesting with analytics and the, and people who just don't. It's just to me. I will be I will be outright just. Not, I hate numbers. They hurt my head. I'm bad at them. People say you're either kind of what is it? Uh, kind of history social in one side of the brain or whatever, or and uh, then the other side is like math science. That might be a little bit off, but I'm so far over to one side. Like numbers literally hurt my head. What, and I think it's the way the analytics are sometimes presented by those who do them a lot, where it's just you put them out there and it's like this is what this is what it is. And nobody knows what's going on and nobody explains it. And it's just like all these like random numbers. So that's why like I like to find numbers to kind of see what's going on with them, see the causation during the season. I track Duke as the season goes on to see what changes. And I will always, always watch the games, see what's going on, and then see the stats, see what's going on with there. It's just all forms of, of information. That's how I take it. So from someone who hates numbers, I find the value in analytics, and it's no different. Like It's not like some like other planet type of thing to talk about like, Oh, his, like the points per possession passing out of the pick and roll. I, I don't feel like that should sound like another language to someone. It's literally when somebody passes out of the pick and roll and, and his teammate shoots it, this is how many points on average occurs. So I think we're, some of us, many, are too quick to say, no, I just want to, whatever happens, happens. The result is the result. That's all that matters. Or I just want to watch the game. Numbers are numbers. They're for nerds. I get it to a point, but I think it's all information. It all helps. And I think whoever has listened to the pod throughout last season, like by the end, I had evaluated every part of Duke. So yeah, I could, by the end, I was just like, yeah, this is what's happened. Cause I, I explained why it happened so many times. I'm all about the how and the why, whatever helps me tell that story or project what's going to happen or even possibly be wrong. I, I'm, I'm more than willing to admit whenever I am wrong and numbers there's more to it there's context with everything but it does help and I think just like with many aspects of life we're too black and white on one side or the other and I think uh, whoever does decide to listen to the pod this season will hear me use analytics but always 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 with explanation and context in terms of the how and the why that's my little rant on analytics and uh yeah, that, that's basically my general thoughts because while some may just want, like, hey, Duke won. It's all that matters. There's reasons why they won. Duke lost. It's all that matters. There's reasons why. And uh, I just find it interesting. So though that about sums it up for the last off-season pod. Thanks so much for listening. Anybody who has any uh, interest in possibly co-hosting at some point this season, hopefully uh, you let me know soon so we can get some chemistry going, but I am more than happy to keep on rolling on with Joe because it's been fun as always. And Joe and I, we're going to be recording again um, for the ACC preview. So there's going to be another pod coming out soon. Until then, Joe, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. This is the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am Adam Comer. I'll be talking to you soon.